Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, the host of Faith Seeking Understanding, and here we are today on June the 28th, 2020. It's still in the middle of the COVID thing, still in the middle of all kinds of other things, and in the midst of all that, we went out hiking today and, and messed around, and as we came back, we were coming back from the mountains down into the valley where we live in Asheville, and as we did, we both remarked, you know, it's odd looking outside. And it's odd looking because in addition to all the other stuff, all the other craziness going on in the world, we're having this weird air quality thing due to some winds that have picked up dust from the Sahara Desert and blown them over into America somehow. And so we have this very strange looking day. It's cloudy, but not really. It's foggy, but not really. It's just weird. So it feels like everything for the last four months can be described with that one word, weird. And so when I look at the lessons today, I'm thinking, well, maybe that'll bring some clarity to things. And then the first thing I find is the psalm begins this way. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I have perplexity in my mind and grief in my heart day after day? How long shall my enemy triumph over me? Look upon me and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, lest I sleep in death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, and my foes rejoice that I have fallen. But I put my trust in your mercy. My heart is joyful because of your saving help. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt with me richly. I will praise the name of the Lord Most High. And it does kind of feel like that, right? I mean, we started this thing, and we, we think, okay, we're in it to win it. We're in it for about three weeks. We're going to deal with the situation the way it is. We're going to whip COVID. We're going to win this battle, and life will get back to something like normal pretty quick. And instead, here we are four months later, now getting towards the 4th of July. And we just ask, how long, O oh Lord? How long? But if we've used this time wisely, if we've used it by prayer, if we've used it to draw closer to him, if we've immersed ourselves in the word, if we've accepted the reality that there are things we can't do and that life is not the way that it was during this period of time, then there's something to embrace about this. There's something that, that should be good about. And I had some conversations this week with some people who, who caused me to realize that there are people who, who have said, yep, I'm going to accept things for the way they are, but I'm going to believe that they won't always be this way. And so I'm going to make the most, one way or another, of this situation. And, and that's what we're called to do. We're called to wait upon the Lord. We're called to listen to him and wait for him like the prophetic silence that goes from the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, to Matthew, which is a span of several hundred years, where there's no prophetic word spoken. And then suddenly into that void, that, that hopeful time when God seems silent in the face of need, comes a word to Zechariah in the temple as he's serving. And the messianic age begins. God's silence ends and remarkable things begin to happen, culminating in 
after a wait of 30 years, Jesus coming onto the scene, doing remarkable things, teaching the Word of God powerfully, and it's attended by acts of power as well. And so the world begins to look different. Hope begins to come into a dark, hopeless world. And then that hope is taken away at the cross. But in glorious resurrection, everything is changed and everything is new and everything is different. God's Son laid down His life on the cross willingly as a sacrifice for sin in order that He might, as He said, take it up again. He was the only one who would have authority to utterly to lay down His life, but to take it up again. And so He takes up that life again. And we have a new and renewed hope that is eternal because Jesus is eternal, because he has risen from the dead, sits at the right hand of the Father, pleading and interceding for us sinners in this place. So we can ask the question, how long will you forget me forever, knowing the answer to that is no, I have not forgotten you. Your enemy will not triumph over you ultimately because the real enemy is the enemy of your soul, not just the one he says that can throw the body into prison or harm the body in any way, but one who has the power over your soul and death. And so no matter what, we will persevere because ultimately we and he are victorious. So be of good cheer. Sing to the Lord. He has dealt with you richly. Praise the name of the Lord most high. That being said, we've got to turn to the lessons a little bit. <clears throat> so it's, an odd set of lessons. I'm just not going to lie to you about that. I'm not going to make it seem like, well, these fit together like a hand in a glove. That's not the way these look to me at all. The gospel lesson is the end of that passage that we read some of last week when Jesus sent out the first disciples and said, don't worry about anything. Go, and, and if the people receive you, then stay there. If they reject you, then turn around, go out, shake the dust from your feet. And move on. He said it's not going to be easy, and there will be some people who reject you. But then in the end of Matthew 10, the last three verses, verses 40 to 42, he says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And so there's a blessing that will come with the reception of Jesus' disciples as he sends them out to preach about the coming of the kingdom in word and deed. And so it's the same today that, that we are to be those who receive those who come as prophets, those who come as righteous people. And so we will not lose our reward if we receive those people. Jesus, in the beginning of John, John's gospel, John says that those there were those who received him not, but all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And we receive him through the word spoken to us, the word preached, the word in the Bible, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because without that, then we have no ability to do that. But then there's a call on our lives once that happens. And that's what Paul talks about 
in the passage that we have from Romans today, from Romans 6, 12 to 23. And, and what he's saying is, is that don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Don't present your members <clears throat> to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And he's making the case that, that we are to be different people if we have moved from death to life in baptism and faith, then we should be different people. We should not be slaves to sin any longer. We should be set free from those things. And we've been given, he says, a standard of teaching that we're supposed to be obedient to. And so having been set free from sin, he says, you become slaves to righteousness. He says, look, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. But you're called to something more. You're called to something higher. And, and that something higher sometimes is hard. It's not easy sometimes to turn away from people, to turn away from things that, that we had previously sought comfort or joy or what pleasure or whatever in. And we're called to turn from those things utterly and become slaves to the one who purchased us. The one who set us free at the cross. We're to become slaves to righteousness, slaves of God. And because we're working for something different. And Paul's very clear, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a high call. He calls us to something we could never attain on our own. He promises us something that we cannot get in our own effort. We don't have enough righteousness. Because one of the things that people will say when they talk about, well, I hope I've been good enough to get into heaven. And the answer is you haven't. You have not been good enough. If you're believing that, that you can be good enough, then you've missed the entire point of the cross. Because the entire point of the cross is to say, you can't be good enough. You can't get this on your own. It's 100% or it's nothing. That's what that means. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life, the only person who ever has, therefore the only one who's ever been raised by God from the dead to life, who now sits at the right hand of the Father. It's a zero-sum game. You either put your faith and your trust in him, or you lose. I hate to say that. I hate that, 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 that people don't understand that. That they think that, that if I'm just good enough, then I'll get in. Because it's just a lie. It's a complete lie. And, it's a, and the reason that it's a lie is because it makes less of the cross. It makes less of Jesus. It makes less of his sacrifice. And that's why it's alive from the pit of hell. Because it devalues the work of Jesus. And anything that devalues the work of Jesus comes from hell. Nowhere else. You're not good enough. God provided all that was necessary to accomplish salvation. That's sort of the message of Genesis lesson that I want to talk about for the rest of our time today.
And that's the lesson of Genesis 22, the first 14 verses. And what that passage is about is when God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I should tell you. You know, the first time that I ever taught that, the first time I ever taught the book of Genesis, I was, <clears throat> had a group of older men. And we gathered for Bible study, and it was right at the height of the popularity of the Left Behind series. And so they asked me to lead something. I had just come to Asheville and to start a church, and they, they asked me to lead a men's Bible study. And I said, sure, what do you want to do? And they said, Revelation, because the book Left Behind had been so popular, and, and they wanted to know more about Revelation. I said, well, first, before we do that, let me ask you something. What do you, what do you know about Genesis, and what do you believe about Genesis, particularly verse 11 chapters? which is Adam to, to the beginning of Abraham, which includes the Noah story. It includes um, things that the Cain and Abel story. It includes the garden. It includes um, so many things that, that people struggle with. And they said, well, those are just stories. They're myths. What do you mean myths? Well, they're, they're just so stories kind of, you know, they're, they're these made up histories kind of things, and, and basically what they believed was is that there was this sort of, you know, uh, body of mythology that was common in all the world, and, and these were sort of the Christian or Judeo-Christian collection of those myths told from a Judeo-Christian perspective. Oh, oh. So you're not sure whether God actually created the heavens and the earth. You're not sure whether there was actually an Adam and an Eve and a Cain and an Abel and a Noah and a flood and the Tower of Babel. You're not sure about those things? No, we were taught to sort of think of those things as you know, prelude to everything else, but those things are unknowable. Okay, well, here's the thing. If you don't believe any of that, then you can't understand the message of Revelation, actually. You, you can't begin studying the final chapter of the book expecting to understand it if you've skipped over the very beginning. Because one of the chief tenets of Revelation and one of the things that, that should break your heart when you read the book of the Revelation is, is that if you believe God created a good creation and it fell due to the actions of mankind and fell from a height that would have been perfect. And then to watch God systematically destroy his good creation in judgment because of mankind. Stars falling from the sky. All kinds of horrible natural physical events that are supernatural, actually. But the destruction of the good creation by the creator in an attempt to still gain the attention of his image bearers, he has to destroy his good and perfect creation. Well, if you don't believe that it's his good and perfect creation, then you miss the whole thing when you study Revelation because you don't understand that you should be caring deeply about that creation. So I taught this book about three and a half years. 
and came to this chapter, and like I said, it's a bunch of older, retired men, and th that chapter actually begins with, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, and then he tells him to take his son, and I said, this makes me mad. And they looked at me and said, what do you mean, nation man? I said, this man is 125 or 130 years old at this point in time. He waited 25 years to get Isaac. He was obedient most of that time. He made some mistakes, but he was obedient during most of that time. And and yet, and yet, that wasn't enough. God tested Abraham after waiting those 25 years, after the joy of having Isaac. And they believe that Isaac is maybe 30 to 32, somewhere in the range that Jesus was when he died on the cross. And God tells him to take his son, his only son, the one that he loves, and go and offer him as a sacrifice. Remember last week? Last week, remember, we talked about Hagar and Ishmael, and it's easy to think about Hagar and Ishmael and separate that from something. And what it's separating it from is Abraham. He had another son. Remember, that text calls him his son. And Abraham was very upset about having to put away Hagar and Ishmael. He loved Ishmael too. And so here... In the very next chapter, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Because as far as Abraham knows, that is his only son. He has no earthly idea what has happened to Ishmael. He was willing that Ishmael might be his son, might receive his inheritance. And God said, no, you're going to have another son. You're going to have a son by Sarah. But even then, he was upset when he was told, First by Sarah and then by God. No, put him away. He loved Ishmael. He would have been perfectly satisfied with Ishmael. And we know that because he told God that. But now, he's had to give Ishmael away. And now he doesn't know where Ishmael is. And now God's telling him to take this son, Isaac. And God calls him your only son, which had to sting. And then take him. On one of the mountains, I will show you. And he did. He did. He got up the next morning. He took two of his men and his son Isaac. He cut the wood and went to the place God had told him. It's the second time in his life he's gone to the place God had told him. It's how he began this walk of faith. God told him to go to a place he will show him. Here he says, go to the place I will tell you. And both times, Abraham goes in obedience to what God told him. And they travel, and three days out, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And he tells the men who were with him, remember there was two others with him, and he said, you stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And he took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took his hand in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went together. And as they go up the mountain, Isaac says, My father. And Abraham, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And then they went together. And Abraham did what he did the first time God told him to go somewhere. He built an altar. 
that time he built an altar and he proclaimed on the name of the Lord because the Lord had promised him he would give him all that place and he would give him progeny. He would give him people. He would give him nations. And now when they come to the place that God tells him in Mount Moriah, he builds a different kind of an altar. He's taken the promise that God gave him, the call that he gave him, the, the fulfillment of that promise. He takes and builds an altar. He says he's going to worship there. He bound Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Think about that. Isaac lying there, top of that wood. He knows now he's going to set this on fire. And I'm going to be sacrificed. And as I said, he's in his 30s, is what we believe. He's not a little boy. He willingly submitted at this moment, too. And so as he is lying there bound on top of the wood, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And then the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said those words that he had said to God in the beginning, the words that he had said to his son, he said, here I am. Abraham's different from Adam and Eve. With Adam and Eve, remember they're hiding and God has to say, where are you? Here all it is is he has to have his name said. He says, here I am, I'm right here, I'm not hiding from anything. He's about to do the worst thing anybody could possibly imagine. The angel says, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know now that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, there was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Because the Lord provided there. So, he was willing to trust God and believe God. He said the Lord will provide. I believe that he did believe. It's the most difficult story, I think, in the entire Bible to deal with. And I'm going to have to spend a lot more time dealing with it than, I'm going, than I can today. I've been so moved by that story last week of Hagar and Ishmael and the story today of finding Isaac. That I've decided that I'm going to do an extended series on the life of Abraham because it's important to know what faith looks like and what faith means. And the best person in the Old Testament to see that is Abraham. He's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. He makes multiple strange decisions and bad decisions and causes a lot of problems in the world today. But the other side of it is, is that Abraham is the father of faith. He is the father of all those who will believe. He is foundational for our understanding of what faith actually looks like. Faith is not sort of blind faith. No, he, he moved on based on what he knew of God and trusted him for more. And that's what we're called to. Again, we begin this whole journey of faith by, by believing 100% that there's nothing I can do to get into heaven. If I've sinned one time, I'm not good enough, but that Jesus has done everything that's necessary for me to have eternal life. <clears throat> I start with that faith. But then 
faith is the rest of my life too. It doesn't end. <clears throat> I don't retire from a life of faith. God's always calling us higher. He wants us to know more and more of him. And there's always more to know. We're not called to rest. <clears throat> We're not called to stop. We're called to persevere. We're called to continue. He will call us to great things if we make ourselves available. If we cut ourselves off as slaves to unrighteousness and slaves to sin, and we begin to pursue obedience to the standard of teaching we've received, and we begin to trust him in all things, if we know his word so that we can know his voice, know the things to which he would call us, to discern between right and wrong, to discern between God's voice and any other voice, to discern the times, to know what we should do. If we will do that, if we'll listen, if we will be willing always, all our lives, to say, here I am, for whatever purpose you might have, then he will never fail to call us, to use us, to challenge us, to test us, to love us, and applaud us. We're always called more. We're always called further on. The walk of faith as a Christian begins with accepting the reality that I'm not enough. I'm not good enough, never have been, never will be. But there's one who is, and I will put my entire faith, my entire trust for eternal life in him. And once I've done that, then I will live for him as well. I will allow myself to be used for whatever purpose the lover of my soul has. I put my trust in your mercy, the psalmist says. My heart is joyful because of your saving help. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt with me richly. And in Jesus, he surely has. I will praise the name of the Lord most high. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. This has been Faith Seeking Understanding. Again, I'm John Green, the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. Thank you for being with us today, and I look forward to being with you next week as well.